The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Hey, friends, Bill Press here. Hope you're enjoying the podcast. I want to be sure you know my new book is out. Uh, Not so subtle. The title, Trump Must Go, the top 100 reasons to dump Trump and one, maybe, to keep him. It's available anywhere books are sold. Um, Best place to get it is go to our website, BillPressShow.com. Special discount there for ordering the book and a way that you can add your own reasons to dump Trump. Let's do it now. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Bill Press Show here on a Thursday, September 13th. My name is Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Bill Press today. Hurricane Florence is inching closer to the East Coast. What does that mean? We will go through some of the details of uh, Hurricane Florence. I can tell you right now, they did downgrade the hurricane overnight to a Category 2, which doesn't mean a whole lot, frankly. We'll talk about what that means. Uh, And uh, we'll also talk about how woefully unprepared the Trump administration is to handle a catastrophe as large as Hurricane Florence. We will get into all of that with uh, me, with Ray Rogers, with our guests. We have uh, Ron Fain coming in a little bit later on this hour. He's written a book all about the case for the impeachment of Donald Trump. Kira Lerner from Think Progress joins us in the next hour, and Hannah Trudeau from the National Journal uh, joins us as well. So lots and lots and lots to talk about. I have to tell you, uh, last night, I took part in uh, one of the more painful exercises that one can do. It was back to school night. Oh, no. It was back to school night. And I have dodged this responsibility for the last couple of years uh, just because either I was occupied or had other things going on and I just didn't make it. What happens at a back to school night? Do they just like hand out flyers? No, no, no. Oh, you have so much to look forward to. Yes, I do. Because I have a I have a teenager. This is his last year of middle school. He goes to high school next year. And what you do is you go through their schedule. So they give you a schedule and you go meet this teacher and then the next teacher and then the next teacher and then the next teacher. You have to wander around the school to all the different things. It is harrowing. And you only spend like 10 minutes with the teacher and then they give you four minutes to get to the next one. But I... It's been a long time since I've been in school. Like, it's been, whatever, 16 years since I've been in a classroom, right? And McKenna, uh, who's here, she's she's in school. Ray, it hasn't been that long since you've been in school. No, it hasn't been that long. I, co- I just, like, I, it's like PTSD. 
Like I was in there. Your backpack is like bumping against other kids. And I was like, oh God. Oh, like, oh, God oh, oh. You dropped your quarters on the ground. Yeah. They like scattered. <laughs> like the the um the bell rings. Yeah. So like they give you a little bell ring when it's time to go to the next class and you only get a certain amount of time before you get to the next one. And you're meeting all these teachers. And like, look, the teachers are all fine. There's, there's nothing wrong with any of the teachers. But it's just like, oh God, one of them he he's got algebra this year. And they're talking about algebra. And I just remember like, oh right, right, right. I'm gonna be zero help with you on this one. <laughs> history, I got you. I can talk to you about history, writing. I got you. Come to me. I can help you with that. Math? I'll help you, Gray. Are you good at math? I am By good the at way, math. math is different now. And I know that this is like a like a, a, an old person complaint. They changed math. I think that the new like common core type stuff is so dumb, but I can teach you, Gray, how to find the answer. I don't know how to do math anymore. That's the that's my takeaway. They've changed math. I don't know what I'm doing. The answer is still the same. The, see, that's the thing. The answer is still the same, but it doesn't matter because you got to show how you got the answer. Because I could just sit down and be like, yeah, here's the answer. Here's how you get to it. But no, that's the wrong way. There's a right way to do it now. And you could get penalized if you don't know the right way. So I am of zero help. That is the dumbest thing I've ever heard because the beauty of math is that there are a million ways to solve and to get the same answer. And as long as it's logical and it's mathematically correct, you should get full credit. Yeah. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. Did you get new math or do you, are you were you still operating on the old math when you were in school? Old math. Math is different. Math is new. They've changed math. They've changed something as definable and easy to understand as math. It is no longer math. Anyway, uh, so I've still got a little, I'm still a little shaky from last night, but we'll get through it together, folks. Find us on Twitter at BP Show. Hang on just a second. On your radio, on TV, and online, this is The Bill Press Show. You got it here on a Thursday, September 13th. It's The Bill Press Show. Hi, everybody. My name is Peter Ogburn. Here for Bill Press today. Bill, Where's Bill, you might wonder? Well, I can tell you, he's up promoting his new book, Trump Must Go. Uh, he's on the road uh, talking about that book. He'll be here tomorrow, though, but uh, he's out promoting that book. And by the way, let me just mention... Uh, something that, that, that we've done that's really, really cool and I'm super excited to share with you. Uh, Bill wrote a book. It's 100 Reasons Why Donald Trump Must Go, Must Be Thrown Out of Office, whether he's impeached or he leaves or we shame him into leave, whatever it is, but he's got to go, 100 different reasons. But as Bill has pointed out, you know, books don't get written overnight and they don't get published overnight, so he had to turn in his, uh, his final draft for the book like a couple months ago, there've been a lot of new reasons. And boy, why, oh boy! Yeah, there've been a lot of so new reasons. So much happened. There've been a lot of reasons why Donald Trump has to go since he finished the book. And so, what we've done—if you go to our website, BillPressShow.com, BillPressShow.com—just go check it out. And if you look up in like the right-hand side of the website, you'll see a graphic for Bill's book. Just click on the graphic, and we're letting you give new reasons. 
why Donald Trump must go. If you've read the book, that's great. If you haven't read the book, just give us a reason anyway. We'll, 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 we'll check it out. Any reason why Donald Trump can no longer be president, find, uh, find our website, BillPressShow.com, and give us your uh, reason why Donald Trump must go. Also, you know, I used to care a lot more about this stuff, but Apple had a big uh, uh, unveiling of their new products yesterday. I uh, I don't have an iPhone X. Um, I, I, I've never even used one. Like, you can go to the store and, like, put your hands on yeah. it. I haven't even done that. It just it doesn't really appeal to me anymore. Uh, they had their big event yesterday. So this iPhone X that they released last year around this time topped out uh, at like eleven hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. No, it was a thousand dollars, which was it, already outrageous. It was a thousand dollars. Yeah, I'm paying a thousand dollars for a phone. No, I don't think so. No, I don't think I'm going to pay a thousand dollars for a phone. So they unveiled all kinds of new stuff yesterday, including three new different iPhone X's. Uh, there's an iPhone X R, which I guess is the regular one. Then there's an iPhone X S. And they also have, Jesus Christ, an iPhone X Mac. iPhone X, excuse me, iPhone XS Max, which, come on, guys. You're just kind of like throwing stuff at the (laughs) wall at this point. Like, make it a little easier for us. But this phone, it's a six and a half inch screen. You're basically carrying around an iPad. It's an iPad. It's a friggin' iPad you're carrying around with you. Like, I I got big ham hands. I got giant hands. This iPhone Plus that they have out now, I it's can't massive. use it. I it's can't use it. massive. You people that carry around these iPhone Pluses are crazy, and you're going to give yourself some sort of a hand injury because they're too <laughs> damn big. Like, I, I've seen people, teenagers, that have these iPhone Pluses, and they're like, they can't carry it. They can't type on it. Your thumbs are not meant to wrap around something like that in text. Like it's too it just big. you can't the keyboard, your hand doesn't even reach around to reach all of the keys. And by the way, I'm a one-handed iPhone guy. That's why okay, I'm officially starting my public campaign to bring back the 4 because yeah. as Steve Jobs said, it was the perfect ratio it for really was. all hand sizes to reach all spaces of the screen. I can deal with the like they they, they made it slightly bigger, mm-hmm. not the not the plus, but they made it slightly bigger. The five, I, was, the five. Yeah, I can deal with that. I want the four. I get, that's that's fine. <laughs> I got big stupid hands. I can deal with I can deal with the bigger version. But these pluses, give me a break, especially with the one finger or the one hand text. I can't do that. And now they got a bigger one. What? Who needs a bigger phone? Who needs a bigger iPhone? Who Actually, out there needs a bigger iPhone? We got um, an advanced release, and Peter has the new iPhone in front of him yeah. right now. This is my new iPhone, y'all. Hello? <laughs> yes. Like, I, I, I'm just going to put this in my pocket. Yeah, just throw that in your back pocket. What is wrong with you guys? You don't Take need out, a phone that a big. You don't need a phone that big. You just don't need a phone that big. And I know that this is sort of like a like an old man crotchety rant. Like, yes, I remember when I had a like a the before screens were a thing. We just had the flip phones, right? And it was the coolest freaking thing ever. I am nostalgic ever. for those kinds of phones, though. You know what? I would absolutely 
I feel like I would, would be so much happier with a flip phone. Me too. It's made and my job like, a lot easier, and certainly with kids. I like having sure. pictures and all that. And like, yes, there are a lot of great things that have come with the iPhone and the cool screen. Give me a flip phone. My favorite part about having a smartphone is GPS. Yeah. Yeah. It's made life so easy to go anywhere you want. Do you remember, like, days of maps and uh, map quests? Map quest. I used to have to print stuff. Like, if I was going on a roadie. Yeah. I would have to print up like eight pages of MapQuest. Always, always. And or now I don't even know where I'm going. Or literally look on a map and say yeah. like, okay, I need to go down the street. Now I just start driving. I don't know yeah, where I'm going. Too. I'll just go. I have go. no idea until it's really made me live in the moment because until I need to make that turn, yeah. I don't need, I don't know that there's a turn. Yeah, you, don't, you do whatever yeah. you want. You get lost as hell. It'll tell you where you're going. <laughs> where am I going? No, left. I don't know. I have no real destination. I'm just going that way. <laughs> like, just... It's, 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 so, yes, you're right. That's cool. But the other thing that they unveiled... was So, so look, if you need a six-and-a-half-inch iPhone screen, whatever. You know what it's going to cost you if you get one of the big ones with all the extra uh, 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 storage and memory and all that stuff? You know how much it costs? Do you know how much it costs? It's $1,500. $1,500 for a phone. If I pay $1,500 for a phone, I want it to make me breakfast. Like, I want a phone that will wake me up and also make me breakfast while I'm in the shower. It's not going to happen. $1,500. And Apple doesn't have enough money, apparently. Like, they're, they're the, the the biggest company in the world. And you know what? Oh, oh, we don't have enough money. We're going to start charging you $1,500 for a phone. I'm done. I had to get it out of my system. It's like my, my obligation, my duty as an old man now to rant and rave about how much, how expensive phones are getting these days. But if you want to know why there's a... Uh, uh, Turn it into a political point now. You don't know why people are getting so annoyed and why, uh, you know, people like Bernie Sanders have to introduce legislation against Amazon to, like, you know, pay their workers when they're the biggest friggin' company on the planet and the richest man on the planet runs it. It's because of this. They're making obscene amounts of money. And Apple still has horrible working conditions. They're not making a ton of stuff here in America. Same thing with Amazon. Terrible working conditions. They're not paying their workers. You have Amazon workers that are going to get food stamps. Find us on Twitter at BP Show. At BP Show. And remember to check out our website, BillPressShow.com. So uh, let's get into the news of the day because Hurricane Florence is still a thing. Overnight, I will say it was downgraded to a Category 2. Do not be fooled, though. This is still a very, very, very dangerous storm. It's weird because it was downgraded to a Category 2, but overnight it also grew in size. And so this is – I'm a bit of a hurricane expert. Schooled I by the news. I, I, uh, I lived through Hurricane Hugo. Mm -hmm. I was there, which is really – I was telling somebody the other day – it just so happens that in school, the year that Hugo hit, which was in 1989, uh, we were studying hurricanes in school. And so I tracked Hugo since the very first wave came off of Africa. 
when it turned into a tropical depression and then the storm and then the hurricane, and I tracked the whole thing. So, like, I remember when it hit in the middle of the night, we went out in the eye, which is creepy as hell if you've never had that experience. It's wild. But so cool. I mean, it's super cool. You're so brave. I feel like I would just be cowered somewhere with, like, a flashlight and some food. Well, the eye is... No, I know. It's, like, all calm, but... Totally fine for a little while. (laughs) Right. I just feel like you don't know when it's going to start again, right? Well, I mean, you get a significant... I mean, there's a little bit of a warning, right, Like which I pushed. But then, uh, a couple of years ago, when I was in Richmond, I, I won my second Edward R. Murrow Award. For the coverage of Hurricane Isabel. And they actually made me go out in the freaking hurricane. Like, I had to go out in the you hurricane. You were one of those guys. I was one with of those like guys. like, the poncho, yeah. and you're, like, whipping around. Yeah. And you're still trying to talk into a microphone. Yeah, literally. Yeah. That's what it was. They like they were like, go out in the storm. Go out there and tell us what it looks like out there. Go out there by where all those trees are and tell us how the trees are moving. And that's what I had to do. So, like, I'm a nut about hurricanes. Like, I... I'm totally, I have like a weird fascination with hurricanes. So anyway, the point is the the wind speed on Florence has come down a little bit. And that's why they say that the that it's now a category two, which sounds a little disarming, right? Because it was a category four and with the potential of becoming a category five. Uh, earlier in the week, they had seen winds as high as 165 miles per hour, which is bonkers. Bonkers. I talk about Hugo, which was one of the most destructive storms in its time. We've seen superstorms that have come along since then that have uh, had have, have eclipsed it. But it was 140 miles per hour, and they were seeing 165 on Florence. But the point is not that oh, it's a Category Two. We just shouldn't take it so seriously. The sheer size of the storm is amazing because again. I keep using the Hugo analogy because that's one that I lived through, and for those of you that that you know remember it, uh, it was a devastating storm. But by comparison, not that big, right? Like the storm itself, it was like a night of, that was very bad. Like, it, at, like the wind started to pick up in the evening. Overnight, the storm happened. By morning, it was pretty much gone. Like it was pretty much gone. Like. This is going to be days, days of torrential downpour. And I know that area very, very well that it's going to hit because now it looks as though it's probably going to come on at like Wilmington, North Carolina, and then take a turn south, which means it's just going to completely barrel the coastline of North Carolina and South Carolina, including my hometown of Charleston. And what happens is you're going to have essentially three... Four days of nonstop rain. And so it's not the wind that becomes an issue, even though the wind is going to be an issue because a Category 2 storm can still do plenty of damage. You're going to have just untold amounts of flooding. One of my favorite parts of this story, by the way, uh, FEMA, and we're going to talk about FEMA. But uh, FEMA has actually uh, coined a term called the Waffle House Index. Are you familiar with Waffle House? Yes. Okay. For those of you that are not familiar with Waffle House, it is one of the greatest institutions here in America. It is uh, it is open 24 hours a day, 365 days uh, a, a year. 
it's real cooking. If you sit there, you can see they just have the flat top. They're doing all kinds of cooking. They make delicious waffles. They have amazing hash browns. Have you eaten at a Waffle House? I haven't. I was just telling McKenna I'm actually not a fan of waffles. I like pancakes, but this is neither here nor there. That's fine. That's fine. You don't have to like waffles, but you have to love Waffle House. <laughs> sure. I appreciate the 24-hour yeah. convenience. So the thing is, now FEMA has has uh, coined a term called the Waffle House Index. In other words, Waffle House stays open all the time. And if a Waffle House closes, you know you know that things just got real. And so they ta- they actually will take a look at Waffle Houses that are able to remain open during a storm. And if a Waffle House has closed, then they know that the damage there is so severe that they got to get help. They got to get help. They actually look at it. It's not a joke. This is not a joke. They can measure the effect of a natural disaster on an area because if Waffle House shuts down or limits its menu after a natural disaster, federal officials conclude that the community took a major hit. That's from CNN.com. FEMA said, uh, Craig Fugate, who was um, uh, head of FEMA under Barack Obama, says the Waffle House test doesn't just tell us how quickly a business might rebound. It also just it also tells us how the larger community is faring. So Waffle House is there for you all the time. And when it's not, be afraid. You better not be in the area where a Waffle House is not open. (laughs) Be very, very afraid. Now, I mentioned FEMA, and we talked about this a little while, uh, or for a little bit yesterday. But uh, kudos, major kudos to Jeff Merkley of Oregon, uh, because he exposed one of the most disgusting stories that I could possibly talk about today. Because, you know, it was not that long ago that we spent a lot of time talking about the child detention centers, which is still going on, by the way. Do not Do not be fooled by these stories about, how it's over and a judge ruled that they have to reunite families. No, 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 no. It's still going on. They still don't know what they're doing. They still don't know where some of these families are. And even if they are reunited, they're still behind bars, some of these families. So don't be fooled. That's still going on. But my point is $10 million in funding for FEMA was diverted to help this child immigration policy, the zero-tolerance policy that led to separation of hundreds of children, uh, that's where the money went. They took money from FEMA to put to that. and It's called Transfer and Reprogramming is the name of the program that they use. And it was done by the Department of Homeland Security, which let's roll things back just a little bit because FEMA is one of the most important programs Uh, administrations that we have in this country and it's when things like like Florence happen or things like Sandy or Maria or any of these other storms happen local governments are crippled a lot of times don't have the resources and the people power to dig themselves out of these disasters and FEMA is becoming increasingly more and more important as these natural disasters increase in frequency and in severity. Yeah. Yeah. They get worse. They're getting worse. And even if, uh, even if a a community is super prepared, like, like we've been hearing from the governors of North Carolina and Virginia and Maryland and uh, the mayor of DC and South Carolina all week long. They know the storm is coming. They are prepared. They are ready. They've been evacuating people. They changed the direction of the interstate so that people could get out. Like they are prepared. And yet, 
when a storm hits and messes your whole life up, it's really hard to get things organized and to help people out that need help. There are certain things that only the federal government have the power to do. I'll say that again. There are certain things that only the federal government has the power and resources to do. Businesses aren't They don't care. I shouldn't say they don't care, but they, some of them are so crippled that they that they can't help. And also, it's bad for it's bad for their bottom line. So they don't like that's that's really what it comes down to. But the federal government can do it. FEMA used to be a standalone organization, a, a standalone branch of government that had its own budget, that uh, uh, reacted really well. Bill Clinton made it a, a priority in his administration. FEMA got a seat at the table in cabinet meetings. The head of FEMA was in the cabinet meetings. It was it was so important to Bill Clinton. But then here comes George W. Bush, and 9-11 happens. And so then they create this Department of Homeland Security. And then they just loop FEMA in with the Department of Homeland Security so it's no longer its own thing. It now answers to a higher power. And now that is where we are. I'll give Barack Obama credit. He took it pretty seriously, too, but it was still part of the Department of Homeland Security. So now it's still under that banner. It's still under that umbrella, the Department of Homeland Security. So with the Department of Homeland Security are the ones that are overseeing the lockup of children in this country. They can say, oh, well, FEMA doesn't need this money. We're going to take $10 million from FEMA and put it over here so that we can lock up brown children. That's how it works, which is mind-boggling. And by the way, before everybody gets upset, oh, Trump did it again. This is Donald Trump, doesn't know what he's doing. This is not a Donald Trump idea. This is any Republican, any Republican. As I mentioned, this was George W. Bush that put this into place. And nobody had a pro- none of the Republicans had a problem with it then, and they damn sure don't have a problem with it now. Like, yes, abolish ICE. I think Democrats can and should run on that message. Democrats should also say, hey, you know what? We're getting rocked by hurricanes every year now. FEMA should have its own budget, should be its own thing, and not have $10 million taken away from its budget to go to locking up children. I also haven't seen any reporting on if there is an evacuation or emergency plan in place for these detention centers for these children. Have you seen what oh, are they God. going to do? I, I, you know, I haven't even thought about that. I'm embarrassed to say. It's like during Hurricane Sandy when um, I was living in New York City at the time mm. and uh, everyone remembers the devastation that the storm brought and the city and the state of New York hadn't thought of the prisoners. Yeah, that's a real thing. I mean, with Hurricane Katrina, I, it's, it's, it's funny you mention that. I was just reading an article about Hurricane Katrina. They didn't think about the prisoners. It's disgusting. They didn't think about the prisoners. There were like 550 prisoners that just went unaccounted for. Their jail cells flooded, like over waist high. They lost power for days. They had no facilities. It's inhumane. They're just standing in standing water. They don't know if they're going to die. They're locked into these cells. It's yeah. disgusting. Yeah. That's, I mean, I hadn't I hadn't even thought about the the detention centers that we're keeping children in, uh, which would be sort of 
the unkindest cut of all when you take the money away from disaster management to put into that, and then we end up with a situation like this. Jeff Merkley is right. He said this is a scandal, an absolute scandal. And you look at the inadequate recovery effort that we put into Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands, uh, and you have to say, like, if we had put some real money towards that problem, maybe, maybe we wouldn't have had 3,000 Americans die. It blows my mind that here we are a year later, and it's just sort of like, not that big of a story that 3,000 Americans died in a hurricane and you still have Donald Trump saying, we got A++. We got A-pluses all across the board. And 3,000 is what they are estimating. Sure. The entire island was hit so hard that they couldn't keep accurate records. Yeah. Yeah. Donald Trump yesterday spoke about... Um, uh, Florence. I, I want to start with a clip. He says Florence is coming fast. Like, President Big Boy uh, is very, very smart. Big, big brain. Here he is telling us. It's coming in fairly fast, and it's going to be one of the biggest to ever hit the East Coast, one of the biggest to ever hit our country. By the way, it's really not coming in all that fast, which, uh, like, it, it, it's approaching, yes, and you should have a sense of urgency with this thing. But that's actually part of the problem is it's not coming super fast. So it's just building. It's just Well, it's, it's just going to hover. It's just going to sit on top of the Carolinas and parts of the Mid-Atlantic, and it's just going to dump. If it was moving fast, we'd have less of a problem, frankly, because it would just dump a ton of rain and then move on. Now it's going to dump a ton of rain over and over and over again. So it's not moving all that fast. And he talked about FEMA already being on the ground uh, in the places that it might hit. FEMA, these are tremendous people also, as you know. What? has already placed extensive resources on the ground, including search and rescue experts, power restoration, and medical support. Boy, if only they had, uh, you know, a bigger budget to handle these problems. (sighs) But, of course, here's what really matters when we're talking about this story. The most important part is that Donald Trump is getting the accolades that he wants. He, He discusses and says, oh, we're doing a great job already. Tremendous people working on the hurricane, uh, first responders, law enforcement, and FEMA, and they're all ready, and we're getting tremendous accolades from politicians and the people. We are ready, but this is going to be one of the biggest ones to ever hit our country. I'd like to see him spell accolades. Or tremendous. Or tremendous. By the way, he deserves zero accolades. And I'm not just saying that from like a partisan standpoint. He hasn't done anything. All the all these governors, and again, I mentioned Roy Cooper from North Carolina, Ralph Northam from Virginia, even Larry Hogan in Maryland early on declared a state of emergency because with a storm this size, you never know what could happen. Uh, Henry McMaster, who is a full-on, you know, uh, Trumper in South Carolina, they all know if they grew up in the state, especially North and South Carolina. They all know that you are living under imminent threat of total destruction during hurricane season. And they're the ones that have to have a plan in place. It's not Donald Trump. Ask Donald Trump what his hurricane plan is. He has no clue. He has no friggin' clue. And so kudos to the governors, yes, 
and the local officials and and the people that are actually on the ground making it happen. Donald Trump deserves zero accolades for this. Zero accolades. No one give him accolades for this at all. <laughs> Please. Um, the other story that I, uh, that, that I just wanted to get into really, really quickly. So Jamie Dimon, you guys might know Jamie Dimon. He is uh, with J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, he's the chairman and CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase. He is the it's the biggest bank in America. Like you talk about the four big banks, right? Like he is he is the leader of the biggest one. Now he identifies as a Democrat, by the way. Not that it matters, <laughs> but he got in a little bit of hot water. Because he said that he could beat Donald Trump if he ran for president. <laughs> so it, here's what here's what JP or excuse me, uh, Jamie Dimon said. He says, "quote I think I could beat Trump because I'm as tough as he is. I'm smarter than he is. And by the way, this wealthy New Yorker actually earned his money. It wasn't a gift from Daddy. So he's picking a fight with Donald Trump." He also says, I can beat the liberal side of the Democratic Party. So when you talk about the liberal side, a lot of these are like the Andrew Gillum, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, those that sort of have embraced the core principles of the Democratic Party instead of the business-friendly Republican light centrists that that we've seen uh, (laughs) in recent years. So almost immediately, he had to backtrack his comments. So here he is sort of saying, like, I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have said it. <laughs> uh, and it, and I more out of frustration and, and a little my own machismo, but I shouldn't have said it. And uh, so um, it also proves I wouldn't be a good politician. So you're you're done with politics? Yes. No running for president for you? No. Ever? Well, I never say never to anything, but no. So, like, uh, that little part at the end, by the way, is just awfully cute. Never say never. He fits right in in Washington. Right. He's right, by the way. We are so sick as a country that we would absolutely positively elect the head of the largest bank in America, a president of the United States. Do you remember during, in 2016, just two years ago, at the Democratic National Convention, when Hillary Clinton had Michael Bloomberg speak? Oh, do I remember. I wanted to vomit. Like, what are you thinking? But Look, Jamie you're going to deride people like Hillary Clinton for giving speeches to bankers and to Wall Street, and then now, potentially, we're in a place in American politics where we could elect one to the highest office. Yeah. 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 We elected Donald Trump. We elected the face of corrupt business to lead the the, the United States. Okay? We would absolutely we are not better than electing a swindling banker head of the country. We are not better than that. We would absolutely do something like that. Oh. By the way, while I was talking about this, Donald Trump started tweeting About Jamie Dimon, he says, the problem with banker Jamie Dimon running for president is that he doesn't have the aptitude or smarts and is a poor public speaker and nervous mess. (laughs) I have to say, I have to say, obviously Donald Trump is very, very bad at all that. He also is very funny sometimes. Inadvertently, it makes me laugh because here's here's what he says. 
He doesn't have the aptitude or smarts and is a poor public speaker and nervous mess. Otherwise, he is wonderful. <laughs> he says, I've made a lot of bankers and others look much smarter than they are with my great economic policy. Now, I don't have to tell you that that tweet is complete and utter nonsense. It's garbage. Donald Trump does not have the aptitude or smarts. He is the worst public speaker that has ever been president. And he is... A, if nothing, he is a nervous mess. Otherwise, he's wonderful. <laughs> Let us see a fight between Donald Trump and Jamie Dimon. I, fine. I don't care. As long as neither one of them actually are president. Like, Donald Trump obviously is already president, but, like, hopefully he's out of the office soon. Jamie Dimon cannot run for president. He could very well win. That's just how dumb we are as a country. We are that dumb. Anyway, find us on Twitter at BP Show, at BP Show. Find our website, BillPressShow.com. We'll take a very, very, very quick break. We will be right back talking about impeaching Donald Trump. Stay tuned. Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. It is The Bill Press Show. Thank you for tuning in, everybody. My name is Peter Ogren, sitting in for Bill Press today on a Thursday, September 13th. We continue to talk about Hurricane Florence. We'll, we'll talk about it all throughout the show. You know, we have the TVs on up here, uh, and they're just showing my favorite footage, which they show. It just It just went off. But my favorite footage that they show every time one of these storms are all the surfers that go out and ride the waves before the storm comes. Which, by the way, I did that when I lived in Charleston and I was in high school. Anytime, like, a big storm, like, came close. Hurricane Dennis? Hurricane Dennis was, like, primo surfing. And you have to be one. You can either be a, you can either skateboard or you can surf. I surfed. And, like, riding those, riding those waves? Killer. Oh, Gnarly. my God. Yeah, they're pretty tasty waves. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, joining us in studio is Ron Fain. He is the author of The Constitution Demands It, The Case for the Impeachment of Donald Trump. Ron, thank you for coming in. I appreciate it. Thank you. So uh, I, I have to say, we were talking off air. Last time I hosted, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had Congressman Al Green in. Uh, and Al Green, uh, very, very early on, said, we got to impeach Donald Trump. I like from day one, we got to impeach Donald Trump. And a lot of people sort of brushed him off and said, this is fringe, this is crazy, this is no good. Uh, and now, how things have changed. I think you're seeing a lot more Democrats get on board with the impeachment. Well, I think we're seeing a lot more of the American people get on board with impeachment. And yeah. there's certainly uh, a lot of uh, resistance uh, from within party leadership in both the Democrats and the Republicans. But the American public is supporting impeachment almost 50 percent, which which is astonishing at this point. Is that where we're at now? OK, so that being said, let's just assume and I think it's probably a safe assumption that Democrats are going to take back the House Senate. It's a little dicier. I've said for a while, I think the Democrats actually have a better shot than people are giving them credit. But let's talk about the House. They get back the House. Nancy Pelosi, Pelosi may or may not become Speaker of the House again. Is Nancy Pelosi going to push this forward? I, I worry about Nancy Pelosi and the current Democratic Party leadership because they have not been supportive of the call for impeachment hearings. But I think that the pressure will be on and that the the public is going to demand that Congress take action. So let me ask you this, because I, I, I had a conversation with a, a conservative family member uh, not that long ago. 
uh, and the topic of impeachment came up. And I didn't bring it up because I've learned to just not bring up politics with my conservative family members. But the topic of impeachment came up. And they said, well, he hasn't broken any laws yet. So there are a couple things wrong with that answer. So <laughs> first of all, he has. And one of the things that we talk about in our book is the, the list of them. But secondly, a lot of people are under the impression that impeachment is about criminal acts, prosecutable offenses for which you could be put into prison. And that's just not the case. The framers of the Constitution didn't think about impeachment that way. Constitutional scholars agree that impeachment is about broader categories of misdeeds than just crimes. And our book sets out eight categories of impeachable offenses that the president has committed. The Constitution demands that the case for the impeachment of Donald Trump uh, right here. You could get yourself a copy written by friends of ours, John Bonifaz, John Bonifaz and Ben Clements. Um, so let me ask you, you know, I mentioned Al Green, and now you see more and more Democrats come on board with the idea, at least being open to impeachment. Um, the thing, again, right, like whether Nancy Pelosi makes it happen uh, or allows it to happen, she's been very wishy-washy about it and certainly very uh, apprehensive of it. But Donald Trump himself said at a rally last week, it, if I get impeached, it's your fault to Republican voters. Like, you've got to keep the House because if we lose the House and I get impeached, it's your fault, which means to me he's putting impeachment on the table. Like, Democrats should be able to run on that now. Well, look, we're a nonpartisan organization, so we're not advancing this call to help or hurt any party's chances. Sure. Uh, having said that, I think impeachment is on the table, whether Donald Trump or Nancy Pelosi wants it to be or not. The public is is paying attention to this, and they're going to have to confront the issue. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, it's sort of one of those things that there was a fringe of the Democratic Party, I would say, the fringe. Uh, uh, you had Tom Steyer, you had Al Green, you had people that have been calling for this for, for day one. But I think once Donald Trump brings it up, if you were a Nancy Pelosi and you needed a reason to go there, now you have a reason, right? You know, I think that the call for impeachment that we started on Inauguration Day started with just one ground at the time, which was Trump's violation of the emoluments clauses by taking payments from foreign governments through his businesses. And since then, the grounds for impeachment have only grown. We have eight in the book. We've actually added two more since the book came out. It's going to keep growing and keep growing. Okay, so let's talk about some of these reasons. Walk me through some of the some of the reasons. Well, the very first one is taking uh, money from foreign governments and actually uh, the U.S. government too, which is also prohibited by the Constitution through his businesses, and that violates important anti-corruption provisions of the Constitution called the Emoluments Clauses that the framers themselves said for grounds for impeachment. Which that was one of the things that we heard from day one. The emol uh, people got very familiar with emoluments. That's right. That's <laughs> Over right. the last like year and a half. That's right. Uh, and, and it's it's kind of fascinating because, you know, there's this case in Maryland about the Emoluments Clause. And it's again, it's one of those things that's just slowly moving that may eventually kept, catch up to him. And again, not that impeachment is illegal, uh, or a proceeding that revolves around whether or not you did anything illegal or not. Um, but that's actually something he could get in real trouble for. And that's an important point that this is, has nothing to do with special counsel Bob Mueller. So all the people who are saying we have to wait for the Mueller investigation to finish first. Right. Mueller's not looking into emoluments. Emoluments are not actually crimes. Trump can't go to prison for taking emoluments. They're a violation of the Constitution. And like I said, the framers specifically listed this as a ground for impeachment. I know you're nonpartisan, 
but when you look at what the Republicans have done to provide cover for Donald Trump, uh, that goes directly against their job description, right? Absolutely. I'm not wrong in that, right? Like that's that's part of their job. Congress is supposed to be an independent check on the president, on the executive branch, and Congress for the last almost two years has completely fallen down on that duty. Yeah. Uh, by the way, we have a comment uh, on Twitter at BP Show uh, about Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi didn't help when she took impeachment off the table for George W. Bush. Uh, look, either way, we're a nation of laws or not. Just decide, politicos. That was from KG. Yeah, I mean that's a great example. George W. Bush also should have and could have been impeached, uh, in, in, in my uh, opinion. Nancy Pelosi sort of provided him a little cover, too. Well, the, the reality is that when Congress fails to hold presidents to account, whether it's Trump or anyone else, it sets the stage for further abuses. And I think you can draw a line from the first ground that we identified, the emoluments, mm. to the things that have come up more recently, like the internment camps for migrant children. A lot of people say, oh, what does that have to do with emoluments is some technical corruption provision. But Trump discovered from the moment he took the oath of office that Congress wouldn't stand up to him. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, one of the most... I think telling uh, uh, tweets came from Maggie Haberman, and she said, you know, the first year of Trump as president was certainly rocky, Uh, (laughs) but he was almost like nervous and scared and wanted to see what he could get away with. And he he saw what he could get away with. And now. The governor is off. I mean, like he could do whatever he wants and he'll get whatever cover he wants from the Republicans. That's right. And I think that's what's behind that message that you you quoted earlier, where he's basically learned that he can get away with anything and Congress is not going to stop him. Now, maybe we learn from Woodward's book. Some people in the administration are trying to stop him from blowing up the entire world. <laughs> right. uh, so far, they've been successful. Right. Uh, they may not always continue to be. But Congress is doing nothing to remove him or, or even hold him to account. Yeah. I mean, that, that's basically what we're relying on at this point is just like, you know, people who are in the White House that are that are bucking him and doing what they want to do. But, Which, but that's not how it's supposed to work. It's not, not supposed to, to have this sort of administrative no. soft coup. Right. No. Like I have to say uh, just there's a little bit of a tangent, but like I see a lot of these resistance types and a lot of progressives that are like, yes, that's great that this person's in there. This is so cool that Donald Trump. Ha-. No, I think that person should go to jail. I think that person should absolutely go to jail. Uh, for different reasons than Donald Trump does, by the way. But, like, that's not how this works. Yeah, I mean, our system is not designed for uh, an anonymous White House staffer to be the only thing between, you know, the president and total chaos. And, right. and that's why we have impeachment. Right. Like, I get it. I, it's it's nice that this person is, or this group of people, as I suspect probably, is is doing things to sort of, like, keep the peace somewhat. But, like, at the end of the day, no, that's not good. It's in fact, it's very bad, especially when you look at all the generals that Donald Trump surrounds himself with. Yeah. I mean, do we really want to have our system be one where the president is largely ignored by his own staff, his own aides uh, who are undermining him? That's actually not a good way to have the system. What we should do is impeach and remove a president who's so dangerous that his own staff don't trust him and want to steal documents off his desk. Yeah. Uh, What are some other reasons uh, that you outline in the book? I mean, we have enough. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we have enough to work with. Right. But what else? What else is is, is in there that we? Should I, look I mean, at? I could go through all of them, but just Let's do it. To, all right. So the second one mm-hmm. is one that does overlap with the Mueller investigation, and it's one where we think that Congress should hold hearings, um, which is accepting, soliciting, and accepting 
uh, illegal foreign assistance during the 2016 campaign and then concealing it. Now, this obviously overlaps with the Mueller investigation, but the Mueller investigation is focused on crimes that may yeah, have been committed. Yeah. And, and there is substantial evidence for that. But what's important to note is that the grounds for impeachment can be broader than just the federal crimes. And Mueller is going to face some technical obstacles in trying to prove a crime to a, a jury of 12 by a unanimous conviction that don't have anything to do with what Congress would need to consider in impeachment hearings. And the evidence is already enough for Congress to start those hearings. We may learn a little bit more through the Mueller hearings, but we already have enough information. And we lay that out in, in the book as to why Congress can start hearings already. And as you mentioned, that's one that's just one reason. And again, when you hear a lot of Republicans say we gotta wait for the Mueller investigation, we have to wait for the Okay, fine. Wait for the Mueller investigation to see if he goes to jail. Right. But like that has nothing to do with impeachment. That's right. It has nothing to do with impeachment. What are some of the other reasons in there? Well, obstruction of justice is another one. Yeah. And again, you know, people say wait for the Mueller investigation. The, the Mueller investigation is going to be focused on proving specific crimes that have some technical elements. And yeah. I'll just give a, an example. Um, one of the obstruction of justice statutes uh, that people look to uh, involves whether the defendant tried to interfere with a proceeding. And what is a mm. proceeding? So this is a term that courts, different courts have taken different views on. Does an FBI investigation count as a proceeding? Does it not? This is totally irrelevant from Congress's <laughs> standpoint, right, right? right? And if you just look at Trump's own Twitter feed, uh, and, and what, what he does, it's obvious that he has uh, used his office to try and block investigations yes! into himself and his cronies. It's plain as day. This is the thing that drives me nuts is whether it's collusion or whether it's obstruction of justice or all of these things that a lot of Republicans will say, oh, well, we have to wait and see. It's there in front of us. That's it's right. happened. We've seen it. We like Collusion has happened on a very public stage. Obstruction of justice has happened on a very public stage. What else could you possibly want? Well, the flip side of obstruction of justice is directing law enforcement to go after his own political adversaries and his critics. So this yeah. Is, I mean, this is something, again, he does this in public. He, he tweeted just recently, he was upset that the Department of Justice went after um, some Republican congressman uh, for corruption, right. right? But he's also constantly- Two of his buddies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But he's constantly criticizing Sessions for not prosecuting, and he's got this long enemies list. And again, he does this in public. This is part of the articles of impeachment against Richard Nixon, mm. and we only learned about it in Nixon's case from secret evidence, like you know tapes and so forth. He's doing this on his Twitter feed, so it's all out in the open. Uh, the Constitution demands it. The case for the impeachment of Donald Trump is the name of the book. One of the authors, uh, Ron Fain, joins us in studio. Uh, the title, The Constitution Demands It. How does the Constitution demand impeachment from Donald Trump? That's a great question, and I only ask great <laughs> questions, Ron. You, you know, you, you might you might say you might say on a literal level the Constitution doesn't demand anything because it's a piece of paper, yeah, right? Yeah. And the answer is that if we take it seriously, if it matters to us, if it's something that we want to endure, then it demands that we take action when it's trampled so openly. See, previous presidents have at least felt the need to hide when they were violating the Constitution. Yeah. Uh, whereas Trump just does it right out in the open. And what he's saying is, if you don't stop me, nothing will. God, that's bleak. Oh, Ron, that's just so bleak. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Have an extra cup of coffee this morning. I, I mean, it, but that that is the case. That is the case. I mean, there is nothing stopping him at this point. So, you know, we talked about this a little bit. I want to come back to it some. 
John Kerry just made news because he says it's a mistake for Democrats to talk about Trump impeachment. Nancy Pelosi certainly has an impeachment problem. Um, you, you have a lot of establishment Democrats that have been there for a long time that think that this is too scary or too politically damaging for their for themselves or whatever. Um, what's the downside here? Like, if I'm Nancy Pelosi, what am I worried about? I don't want to, you know, try and speculate into what's in her mind, but, sure. but I, you know, I think that the argument is made is that impeachment would be divisive. Um, but the truth is, we're already in a very divisive time. And uh, yeah, I don't know if you guys have noticed this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Things are fairly divided <laughs> these days. Yeah, yeah. You know that the there's a great forward to our book uh, by John Nichols from the Nation. Sure. And yeah. He opens by saying. Uh, impeachment is not a constitutional crisis. It's the cure for a constitutional crisis. And we're in a dark, divisive time no matter what we do. But if we don't take action against Trump, decisive action, then it's setting the stage not only for him to continue to abuse his power, but for a future president who may be better organized, more disciplined, more focused than him. Well, that's one of the things that I always said during the Obama administration, because Barack Obama did plenty of things I did not like. And I think that there were a lot of Democrats who just said, well, he's not going to do anything bad with this power to authorize endless war at any given moment, which we we essentially have. Uh, but Barack Obama is going to do the right thing. Right. And in my heart, I mostly believe that. But Barack Obama's not president anymore. We've got Donald Trump. And so that like uh, to your point, it's bad. Donald Trump being president is pretty bad and bleak. It could get a lot worse. It, it really like could. Like a lot worse. It really could. And, you know, what we've learned uh, so much about, uh, not just from the Woodward book, but in, in just seeing it live, is that he, he does have uh, some type of mental issue that prevents him from yes. fully focusing on uh, all the damage that he would like to do. But um, but a future president might not have that problem. Like, look, I, I, I've said this before. Like, there are people that are worried about the lasting damage that Donald Trump is is doing to the country. That's a, a legitimate concern and a real fear. But like, Donald Trump has done nothing. Like, by comparison, it's nothing compared to what George Bush and Dick Cheney did to this country. Nothing, and not even close. Not even close. Like Donald Trump has done some buffoonery and like certainly like some of the regulations and things like that. And but like compared to what George W. Bush and Dick Cheney did in broad daylight with the support of their party, there's nothing compared to that. Well, I think, you know, one of the forms of lasting damage that Trump is doing that, um, you know, to their limited credit, um, President uh, George <laughs> W. Bush uh, did, did not do is he is opening up uh, some racial wounds that. Yeah. I mean, they've been there for a long time. I'm not saying Trump created this. No, um, totally. But the country was starting to, you know, to make some serious progress towards them. And he is sowing racial discord in a way that will be hard to undo um, after he got, you know, the, I don't think a future president is going to have the specific issues that Trump had about getting Russian government assistance during the campaign. Right. But this sort of white nationalism being promoted as you know almost an official policy of the United States government, that's going to continue. And... Uh, until we decisively reject it. Yeah. It really is amazing, like, how far we came in the brief period of time, which is a blink of an eye in the grand scheme of things, that Barack Obama was president, and how we did kind of start to open up these talks about race, you know, like, very difficult conversations that people of all colors should be having, and now, my God, like, how quickly we reverse back to, you know, 
the talk that we had, you know, 40 years ago. Yeah, and, years it, ago. And, and the talk has real impact. We talk in the book about uh, something that they call the Trump effect, which is that um, there have been statistical studies that show that when Trump gives a, a speech in a particular city, uh, there's an increase in racial incidents, violence, uh, incidents in schools in that city as compared to other cities on the same day or the same city on different days. That's horrifying. Yeah. And, and, you know, if you go to a high school basketball team and one team is mostly white and one team is mostly black or Latino and you hear that the, the crowd is chanting Trump, Trump, yeah. Trump, everybody knows what that means. You know what that means. And the fact that his name has turned into a racial taunt is uh, a sign that that he's opened up something that had been uh, uh, I'm not going to say it had been put away, um, but it had been pushed down yeah. in, into the, the uh, dustbin where it belonged. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. The case for the impeachment of Donald Trump, the Constitution demands it, is the name of the book. Ron Fain, one of the authors, joins us in studio. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Uh, I, I predict that Democrats will take back the House, and then we will see just how uh, serious they are about it. Good luck with the book. Thank you for coming here. Y'all pick up a copy of this. We'll be right back. This is The Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary and every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Yes, indeed, it is The Bill Press Show here on a Thursday, September 13th. Thank you so much for joining us. Lots to talk about today with me, Peter Ogburn, your host. Uh, Bill is out promoting his book, his new book, Trump Must Go. I'll mention again, uh, for those of you who are listening on the podcast, uh, he wrote a book with a hundred reasons why Donald Trump must go, but you know how these books work. He had to turn his manuscript like a couple months ago. So there's like a whole new host of reasons why Donald Trump must go. And so we have a page on our website, billpressshow.com. If you take a look, you'll see, uh, the graphic of the book, click on that. And then you could submit your own reasons, new reasons since the book was finished of why Donald Trump must go. So uh, keep doing that. Uh, give us your comments on why Trump must go, and we'll read those on the show. And it's sort of like, it's almost like a living book. We've got all these new entries that we can put in there. Hell, he might even write a whole new book, 100 New Reasons Why Trump Must Go. Uh, so go check that out and follow us on Twitter at BP Show. Joining me in studio, political reporter at Think Progress, Kira Lerner. Hi, Kira. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. It's nice to see you. I appreciate you coming in. By the way, I, I mentioned uh, in the last hour about the new iPhones that they announced yesterday, which I will not be getting. 
because I don't because I, I don't want to rob a bank to get a phone. It's fifteen hundred dollars for this big phone. Uh, somebody actually uh, uh, found us on Twitter. Uh, Michael says, I'm considering it because I'm a rideshare driver and I want the screen space and it might be able to help with navigation and dispatch. Okay, fair. Okay, that fair enough. Also, I am i don't have great eyesight. I can see my phone just fine when I'm looking at directions. Like, I get, you, you get one of those little things you put in your car. I drive a lot. Yeah. You get one of those little things you put your phone in a little holder and you can see it. Like, I can see it just fine. I have to say, I have one of the older, bigger ones, and it's nice. Really? I, I recommend. You got one, you I got, give all my money to Apple. You got the big one? I have the plus. Look at you. Yeah, look at you. I, I got big hands, and I can't even handle that. It's too big for me. I've got long fingers, so right. I can't complain. I'm a one-handed uh, phone user, so I do this number. I, I can't do it with the plus. You get used to it. Do you? You can get used to anything. Apple has us around their little finger. They, they kind of do. They kind of do. But, you know, I didn't mention this when I talked about it last hour. They also unveiled these new smartwatches. Or they're, not, they're not new. The Apple watches. But, but with the, a lot of new updates. The new updates on it are crazy. Mm-hmm. They've got sensors on the watch. You could get, a, like, an ECG on your phone. That's It's wild. Folks, we're living in the future. <laughs> okay, but just wait until they start serving you ads based on, like, your ECG results. <laughs> 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 Buy yeah. this super juice brain power powder. Like, I kind of hate the the uh, uh, footstep monitor thing that, like, if you've been uh, dormant for 10 minutes, it'll give you a little buzz. Like, get your ass up and walk. Like, leave me alone, okay? I'm going to get my exercise. Just leave me alone. I get my 10,000 steps a day. I don't need you to bark <laughs> at me about it. And so, like, now it's it's so – it's almost invasive. But, like, it's also having been a user of Apple products for many, many years, I'm now at the point where I'm like, oh, hmm, it can monitor my heart rate. I'm actually into that. Yeah. You buy into whatever they, they offer us. It's true. It's true. But, like, Apple doesn't have enough money. They're going to charge us $1,500 for a phone. I just got the new laptop, but what really frustrates me is that the new laptop doesn't match up with the new phone, and you can't plug one into the other. Oh, that's awful. The device compatibility is a huge that's struggle since Steve Jobs passed yeah. away, I feel like. Yes. Like, what's crazy? But just make stuff that works. And also the dongle, because I'm still a, a like a headphones guy. I'm yeah, a, a that's Bluetooth. a no. Come on, guys. What poor design... Oh, my God. No. Come on, guys. Anyway, uh, we're not going to talk about Apple products all show. We have some actually really – We could. We could. We we actually could. But we have some really actually very important stuff to talk about with Kira. After a very, very quick break, we are going to talk about voting rights and the state of voting rights in America in the year of our Lord's 2018. (laughs) Stay tuned. It's a very, very quick break. We'll be right back. Download our podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show. Yes, indeed, it is The Bill Press Show. Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining us here on a Thursday. It's a primary Thursday. Don't forget, you know, the primary Thursdays that we're all used to and know and love. In uh, New York, it's the big primary between uh, Andrew Cuomo and Cynthia Nixon. If I could just for a moment talk about that. Uh, in recent days, this 
awful anti-Semitic mailer that went out about Cynthia Nixon, it has now come to light that it was approved by Andrew Cuomo and his top aides. Like, they have admitted. They admitted. Like, they, they at first they sort of said, like, oh, this was done by the Democratic Party and, like, like... No, no, no. It was done by Andrew Cuomo. And it's worth thinking about that if you're in New York. A- Andrew Cuomo is going to win. I, I, I hate to say it. Like, all polls show him up by a lot. So I fear, like, I feel that he's going to win. But, boy, he should not win. Whether you're a Cynthia Nixon fan or not, that is absolutely disgusting. Disgusting. And if you're in New York, remember, it's a Thursday primary. So uh, get out there and vote for Cynthia Nixon is is all I can tell you. My name is Peter Ogburn. I'm sitting in for Bill Press. Bill is out there uh, promoting his new book, Trump Must Go, which you can check out at our website, BillPressShow.com. I'm joined by political reporter at Think Progress, Kira Lerner. Hi, Kira. Hi. We have a lot of Think Progress people on the show. (laughs) So I see, yeah. And this is your first trip to the show, and I feel I've paid a price for it. And I, I you, this will be the first trip of many, Thank you. I'm sure, because you actually cover something that we are very, very interested in. Like we, we, we talk a lot of you know general horse race stuff, and you know uh, electoral politics, and, and election politics, and, uh, and and all the news of the day. But like none of that matters without the voting rights stuff, and. You've done some really, really great reporting on the state of voting rights. So I first of all want to want to ask you a very broad question, which I think will set the table for the, what we're about to talk about. But like, where are we with <laughs> voting rights? And I realize that's that that's a very, very broad question. But sure. like, we remember, you know, uh, there were a lot of issues with the way that we vote with Bush v. Gore a million years ago, uh, and it's sort of like disappeared on a national level and now it's really all local stuff yeah well thanks for having me on because i always say that voting rights is a topic that deserves far more attention than it gets because we are in a really scary time when it comes to voting rights i would compare the types of activities we're seeing on the state level when it comes to voting to the jim crow era more than anything i mean this is a real turning back of the clock um actually the u.s commission on civil rights just yesterday released a report looking at voting rights in america I bet it's since, gonna be bad since 2006 i bet it's gonna be bad news. yeah it's not great yeah. it's not great um if you remember in 2013 the supreme court completely gutted the voting rights act and in the now five years since then we have seen countless voting restrictions and laws on the state level that explicitly make it more difficult for minorities to cast ballots. And again, like not not to beat a dead horse, because I mentioned this in the last interview. You know, a lot of people just said, "Oh, it's fine. Barack Obama's president. Everything's fine." It really, there are so many things that we should have taken more seriously on the local levels over the years. So many things. All of this is happening on the local level. And while Obama was president, we remember that Republicans were taking over state houses and legislatures and the country was turning red and we weren't paying attention to things like voter ID laws and cuts to polling places that really, when it comes down to it, determine whether or not Democrats ever have a chance of taking back these states. This is this is going to be a bleak conversation. I can already tell. Um, happy Thursday. Yeah, happy Thursday, everybody. Uh, well, the good news is we have a hurricane coming, so like at least the news will get better. Yeah. Uh, 
There's so much we want to talk to you about, but I want to talk specifically about one story that you wrote about one of our least favorite people that we talk about, Chris Kobach. Uh, Hardcore Trumper, running for governor in Kansas. A really weird primary, by the way, because I was alarmed at, it was very, very close, we remember, and then um, the guy he was running against. Collier. Thank you. Pretty quickly conceded. Like, he I thought it was going to be a slog, and it was less than a week, and he conceded. That surprised all of us, yeah. considering that Collier is currently the governor of Kansas. Um, first of all, both of these men, Chris Kobach and Collier, are very right wing. We're not. Yeah, this is not there's no good guy here. Between a moderate. <laughs> Thank but, you. Yes. But yeah, Collier was only down a couple hundred votes, I think 320 something or 350 something, if I recall. And a week after the election, held a press conference and just backed down. And I heard from a lot of, a lot of people in the state that this was the Republican Party in Kansas trying to pull the party together and move on to the general election. But if you look at what was happening when it comes to counting votes there, there's a lot to be somewhat suspicious about. Like what? So I reported <laughs> last week that a election uh, integrity expert in Kansas has reached out to Kansas has hundreds of counties, so this is a lot of work. He's reached out to, I believe, all of the counties Mm. um, to take a look at how many early ballots were rejected in this primary election. Um, Now, the counties don't have to report why they're rejecting early ballots, and he claims that a lot of them were being rejected for ridiculous reasons, signature matching issues. Um, If you, I mean, I never sign the same signature every time I sign a receipt or sign a form. And these people who the, the counties were claiming didn't have matching signatures, they weren't being given a chance to fix the issue. That's crazy to me. It's pretty crazy. Why is voting so hard? <laughs> Why do they make it so hard to vote? Because they want to pick their voters. Yeah, that's so, yeah, that's what it is. So if you look at Johnson County, which is um, a county around Kansas City, um, Chris Kobach spent the night of the election on the phone with a Republican election official in that county who he had appointed. This this guy in the county is a Kobach ally. Stop right there. <laughs> You've said all I need to hear. No, no, finish, finish. But like sure. that alone is shady as hell. Sure. Yeah. So I'll give the Kansas City Star credit. They obtained the call logs and they see that these men were on the phone at least two times in the early hours of the morning after the election. Um, And the next day, we saw that that county, uh, Johnson County, had rejected, I want to say, almost 200 early ballots for these irregularities. Oh, what? Right. So this week, a all-GOP panel met to consider um, an objection that this activist filed to the fact that Kobach won this primary. And surprise, surprise, this all GOP panel said, oh, nothing fishy here. We're moving on with the general election. That's crazy to me. I'll ask a very old question. What's the matter with Kansas? (laughs) I mean, what is the matter with Kansas? Because they elected Sam Brown back as governor. I've I've said for a while, actually, if you want to if you want to really look at uh, the, the real poison of conservatism, look at Kansas. Like, all the problems that we're about to see play out here on a national level have already played out in Kansas. Of course. And to give Kansas some credit, although I'm not sure they deserve No, we give give Kansas zero credit. We give Kansas zero credit. Sure. Go ahead. What I was surprised by when I was reporting on the primary in the state is that it's 
widely believed among many, I mean, many Democrats, but it's widely believed in the state that it's time for a Democratic governor. Yeah. The, 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 the Governor's mansion in Kansas has swung back and forth between Democrats and Republicans for a long time. And here in Washington, we can look in Kansas and be like, oh, it's such a red state. Of sure. course, Kobach is going to win this race. But I would encourage people to keep an eye on Laura Kelly, who's the um, Democratic nominee. Does she have a shot? I I think she does. I mean, we're still a few months out. Anything could happen. Chris Kobach is in the national spotlight so much. We don't yeah. know what will happen with Trump. But she she's viewed as somewhat of a moderate, which I think for Kansas um, could work out for them. By the way, if you need a reason to vote against uh, Chris Kobach, as you just lined out, he essentially stole the primary. So uh, that that's reason enough. But, you know, I mentioned, you know, when you look at all of the ills that we're about to face here as a country, they've already played out in Kansas. When you look at, like, the massive tax cuts for the wealthy – that's something that was Sam Brownback's pet project that he was able to do. Um, and like even the Republicans years later, a- after completely bankrupt the state, they're like, oh, yeah, whoops, we need to fix that. Right. And we did the same thing on a national level. And then if you look at Chris Kobach's platform, he's running on even bigger tax cuts. Ah, what is wrong with people? Yeah. What is going on? Yeah. I mean, I. You know, wheel in the sky keeps on turning. People will continue to vote against their best interests. Oh, God. If they can vote. If they can vote. So on that note, you actually had a crazy story uh, recently about a woman in Florida who had her voting rights restored. Talk a little bit about people who are who are able to get their voting rights restored and what that what that entails. Sure. So a little background. I've been doing a lot of reporting on Florida's felon disenfranchisement law. Mm -hmm. Florida has one of the strictest laws in the country. There's only four states that permanently ban you from casting a ballot for life if you've committed a felony. Um, Florida has this really uh, arbitrary process in which in order to have your voting rights restored, first you have to wait five or seven years after you've completed your sentence, and then you have to petition the governor, who is now Rick Scott, and a panel of his GOP cabinet members to have your case heard. Um, I So the this panel held one of their quarterly meetings on Tuesday. Um, as of Tuesday, or as of the beginning of September, there were over 10,000 people who had their petitions waiting in front of this board to be wow. heard. On Tuesday, the panel heard 21 of them. So this woman I spoke 21. with- 21. Okay. okay. This woman I spoke with, to Keisha Tyler, was very, very lucky. And I think she knew how lucky she was to have her case heard. So she traveled from Miami, mm. which she told me is a 10-hour bus ride to Tallahassee. Um, and as John Oliver said on his segment on Sunday night, if anyone saw that, nobody should have to go to Tallahassee for any reason, Agreed. let alone to sit before a panel Agreed. with Rick Scott. Agreed. I've never been, so I can't speak to Tallahassee. Uh, yeah, it's not great. I've been to <laughs> so Tallahassee. is not great. That's right. So this woman took a 10-hour bus. To- Sorry, Tallahassee. I, no, <laughs> yeah. no offense. Uh, I'm sure you're all wonderful people. We love Tallahassee Lo- listeners. Love you guys uh, that are listening and watching, but like, boy, oh boy. That's right, bleak. right. It's not a great place. So this woman um, unloads trucks for Target for mm-hmm. a living. She's been at the, that job over a decade, but she had to request three days off work, took a 10-hour bus in both directions, and spent a night in a hotel in Tallahassee. Also, that she could appear before Rick Scott and his colleagues for 
less than five minutes. Um, her portion ended up being really small. She was very lucky. They had read her file. She talked about how she hasn't committed a crime in decades. She has children. She's working. And they were like, okay, we will grant the restoration of your civil rights. But if you watch these hearings, other people are denied for completely ridiculous reasons. The panel will ask how many children they have and if all of the children are with the same mother. They'll ask if these people are going to oh church. My God. They'll ask. Going and there's to church? No, there's no criteria whatsoever. I'm... I'm actually speechless. I'm dumbfounded. This is crazy. It's pretty crazy. Um, on the bright side, there is pending litigation in an appeals court that claims that this process is totally ridiculous. And also, in November, Florida voters will get to decide on a ballot amendment that would make it so that anyone with a felony conviction that's not murder or violent sexual assault would automatically have their rights restored. So this process would be mostly unnecessary in the future yeah yeah i mean just imagine just imagine that you have to go through those hoops just to get a right to vote right just to get the right to vote i mean get a, a, a 10 hours and then staying in a hotel room and then having to go up in front of these uh people who clearly hate you <laughs> and so many people i've spoke with committed a non-violent drug offense when they were in their teens or in their 20s. And now they're in their 40s and 50s, and they've been living decades of a life, paying their taxes, paying their dues to society. And they just, I mean, they tell me how horrifying, how horrible it is for them to feel like they're not a real citizen, like they can't have a say in democracy. Um, You know, I I, I think of Terry McAuliffe in Virginia. I think he did... Mm -hmm. Uh, a lot of good when he restored voting rights to felons. That was sort of like the first big case that I can remember where someone actually took a stand on that. How successful has that been in Virginia? Yeah, so Terry McAuliffe was very successful. At first, if you remember, he just wanted to um, issue a sweeping order that would do this automatically. Um, Republicans fought back, and then as a result, he decided to sign these people's clemency petitions one by one. Um, And there were thousands of people that got their voting rights back. I was in Virginia last year um, during the gubernatorial election, and so many people were voting for the first time, and it was a really amazing thing to see. And Governor Northam has continued that. Um, So in states where you have governors that understand the importance of second chances, Um, It's really cool to see things like that. Unfortunately, Rick Scott does not feel the same way, and we're seeing the opposite in Florida. Uh, I read a piece uh, earlier this week about uh, Andrew Gillum, Uh, and if he's going to win in Florida, which it's going to be a a real horse race in Florida. It's going to be close. Yeah, it's going to be really, really close. But if he wins in Florida... It will be because, and this is, I think, a message that a lot of Democrats can take. If you're going to win, you're going to have to win with a black vote. The right. black vote is going to have to show up for you. Right. Um, and there, I mean, when you talk about disenfranchisement of voters, is Florida ready for that? Yeah. I mean, we'll have to see. One thing that's encouraging is that if Andrew Gillum really does have a lot of enthusiasm and he can get black voters to show up at the polls for him, that'll that'll essentially mean good things for Amendment 4, this amendment to restore voting rights. And we could totally see a different electorate in Florida in coming elections. But this election is going to be tough. I mean, I look back at um, the Alabama special election and how Doug Jones won because black women 
went to the polls yeah, in numbers absolutely. that we hadn't seen before. It also didn't hurt that his opponent was a pedophile. But <laughs> but 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 to, to your point, absolutely. Sure. Absolutely true. I mean, what? if you look at DeSantis, I don't know if we have a, a much better opponent going on in Florida. Yeah. But yes. Did you, uh, uh, have you spent, I assume you've, you, like, the DeSantis stuff yesterday, so he unveiled his uh, his environmental plan. I don't mm, know if you saw this. I have not seen that. So he, invo- he he talked about what an environmentalist he is. He went on an airboat ride. He did this whole thing. And then the Tampa Bay Times was like, tell us about your, your environmental platform. He was like, eh, we're not ready to talk specifics yet. <laughs> We'll get there. This is just for show for now. It's the Trumpiest. I mean, people talk about how he is a mini Trump. Right. Like he is the he is the Trumpiest candidate out there. Yeah. Like he uses the same rhetoric. He's got the same style, and he is so shallow on the details that, like, yes, yes, he is Trump. Yeah. This Florida race is going to be like a mini twenty twenty. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens. Oh, oof. I not to bring up twenty twenty. Well, no, it's okay. We're going to talk about 2020 uh, in the next segment for sure. But, you know, that's one of those races that I am so interested in and also so horrified by. Because, like, if you want to talk about how far we've come in, like, the two years since uh, the election of Donald Trump, I don't know. Have we? Well, we'll see. Yeah. You never know what's going to happen with Florida. I will admit I was in Florida in November 2016, and I was Ooh. reporting on the changing demographics in the state, all of these Puerto Rican Cuban voters, yeah. and how they were coming out for Hillary. And then on election night, I was just I did not see what I expected. So yeah. I, I hesitate to make any predictions this year. Yeah. Well, you actually it's interesting. You 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 brought uh, you actually recently wrote about that. The Puerto mm-hmm. Rican residents and the impact that they might have on the midterm elections. Uh, what are you seeing in terms of how that might have an effect? Yeah, I think before the primary, when people were looking at the voter registration numbers, uh, they were disappointed to see that these Puerto Ricans that came to mostly the Orlando area after the hurricane just were not registering to vote in the numbers that they saw, uh, that they wanted. Sure. Um, I spent some time with some groups on the ground that were trying to change that. They were sitting outside of polling places all day during early voting days trying to register people and do voter outreach. Um, I think between now and November, there's still opportunities to register people. So I think the numbers will increase. But... I think for the most part, it's not the type of electorate shifting event that some thought the hurricane could be in Florida. Mm, that's interesting. Uh, political reporter at Think Progress, Kira Lerner, is in studio with us. You can follow her on Twitter at Kira underscore Lerner, K-I-R-A underscore Lerner. Um, let's talk about the impact that the Supreme Court might have on voting rights because sure. – there is also this Supreme Court nominee that's out there. Ray, can I play that quick clip of uh, Senator John Kennedy from Louisiana? Yesterday he was asked about this, and he says, I mean, as if, spoiler alert, he's going to vote for Kavanaugh. Judge Kavanaugh testified for 32 hours. Um, I listened carefully. Um, I, I didn't think I asked him softball questions. I spent a lot of time reading his law review articles and reading his opinions. Um, I came away convinced that he's eminently qualified. Oh, oh, good. Kennedy doesn't think he asked him softball questions. Thank (laughs) thank God. Democracy is safe. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. I I was worried there for a second that this might be a partisan show. Um, But I, I, I hate to say this. I hesitate to say this. 
I'm sort of of a mind that like this is gonna happen. Kavanaugh is gonna happen, and we should just move on. Yeah. Like we should just move on to the next the, the 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 next crisis du jour. And that might not be a popular opinion. I can understand why you would be annoyed by that, but like it's just not gonna happen. This is just it's it's simple math. And what Republicans have done is they've identified what they want to get done, and they're gonna get it done, hell or high water. Yeah. It's a good message the Democrats maybe ought to adopt. Yeah, I would agree with you. But I think there's still so many horrifying things in in a potential Justice Kavanaugh that yeah. we need to keep paying attention to, bringing it back to voting rights. Yeah, Kavanaugh uh, is a person who supports voter ID laws. He likely would have sided with a majority in the uh, 2013 Shelby County decision that gutted the Voting Rights Act. And as we've written at Think Progress, if he's confirmed, we're likely going to see the end of the other parts of the Voting Rights Act completely. You know, it's uh, th- there are a-, a lot of things to be horrified by Brett Kavanaugh being a Supreme Court justice. And I know a lot of people sort of focus on Roe versus Wade and that you should obviously be very concerned about that. Um, but, you know, as Ray and I have talked before, like Roe versus Wade is already kind of dead in certain parts of America. They're able to just make it dead. Not that that's OK, but like it's just a fact. And yes, it would be very, very bad if Roe versus Wade goes away and it becomes, you know, outlawed as as the law of the land again. But also, it's about these things. It's about the voting rights stuff. Yeah. That that like could really hurt. And we've seen what power the Supreme Court has when it comes to voting rights. Like, yes, most of these restrictive laws yeah. are being passed at the state level, but most of the laws that we've seen in the past five years would have been blocked if the Voting Rights Act still had the teeth that it had before 2013. Uh, God, that's depressing. Yeah, to give you one example that just feels really egregious to me, I don't know if you all followed uh, Randolph County, Georgia's plans uh, last month. No, please, tell us. So Randolph County, Georgia is a rural county uh, in the south of Georgia. It's a majority African-American county, and... The county hired this outside consultant to come in and help them figure out how to run their elections. And this consultant told them, you should close roughly three quarters of your polling places, including all of these polling places in uh, neighborhoods that are largely black. Um, he claimed that these polling places didn't comply with the American with Americans with Disabilities Act. But instead of finding other buildings or facilities that could accommodate these voters, he just decided to close them altogether. Oh, oh, and this plan, oh. without without reporting and attention, totally would have run under the radar. The Justice Department yeah. no longer has to approve changes like that. So Randolph County would have been free to just close 75 percent of their polling locations. Uh, but thankfully, adv- advocacy groups caught on and and protested and came to these hearings and the plan did not go through but things like the country it's one of the most underreported stories i think in america of the fact that like you have this party that claims to be all about democracy and freedom and patriotism and all of this and yet they realize that they've lost the culture war They've lost in the battle of ideas, and the only thing that they can do is disenfranchise voters, cram Supreme Court justices through without, you know, due diligence. I mean, they have lost 
in the battle of ideas, but it's not stopping them. Yeah, they're winning when it comes to picking and choosing their voters. Well, happy Thursday, everybody. Uh, Kira Lerner, thank you so much for joining us, politics reporter at Think Progress. Uh, I promise this won't be the last time you're here. It's the first time you came on the show. I promise it won't be the last time. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's and it's really, really important work. Follow her work at thinkprogress.org, thinkprogress.org, and uh, follow her on Twitter at Kira underscore Lerner. Uh, lots more to talk about. I mentioned we would be getting into 2020. That will be where we go next with Hannah Trudeau uh, from National Journal. Stay tuned, everybody. We'll be right back after a quick break. Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Yes, it is The Bill Press Show. Hi, everybody. My name is Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Bill Press today. Remember, you can follow the show on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Peter Ogburn. I'm, I'm not a big tweeter. I, I mention that every time. I don't, I don't tweet that much anymore. I don't even check Twitter that much anymore. I just have politics, like, it just takes up so much of brain space anyway. Like, I could deal with not checking Twitter all the time. <laughs> but if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm on Twitter, uh, at Peter Ogburn. Uh, joining us, you know, last segment we had a, uh, a first-time guest. We have another first-time guest in studio. She is Hannah Trudeau, staff correspondent for National Journal. Uh, you can follow her on Twitter. At, you tweet, I imagine. I tweet. H.C. Trudeau, T-R-U-D-O. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited. Thank you for coming in. Your first trip of uh, what I'm sure will be many. Uh, you have been covering all things 2020. <laughs> and like Bill notoriously hates talking about 2020. And that's fair. It's, it, you know, like there are a lot of other really important things and, and, and like local races that are important to talk about. But also 2020 is, is very important. We're going to talk about that. But first, I just want to give a quick update about Hurricane Florence, uh, because overnight you might have seen it was downgraded to a Category 2 hurricane. But again, do not be fooled. It is still a very, very, very powerful, very large hurricane. Uh, it, you know we live in end times when you see the headline that the hurricane was downgraded to a Category 2, but grew in size. Like the storm grew bigger. It's just <laughs> the winds aren't as strong. And so you've just got torrential downpour, and it's just this huge storm that's going to just rain, 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 rain for days on end. There'll be massive flooding. The winds will still be a problem, but they're not looking like they're going to be as much of a problem as they could have been, which is positive. But still, this is going to be a deadly, dangerous storm. So if you can get out of the way, get out of the way. <laughs> All right, and we will uh, we will update you on Hurricane Florence and the response to it as often as we can. So I mentioned Hannah Trudeau is here talking all things 2020. 2020 is already underway. 2020 has been underway for the past two years, yeah. I would say. Now, Year and a I, half. I, I want to ask you, like, I'm, I'm a little older than you. <laughs> I remember not that long ago when, like, we didn't start this early with right. this stuff. Right. And, like, I don't know who's to blame for it, whether it's cable news or just that there's more of an appetite or certainly, like, in the days of Trump where, mm -hmm. you know, you have a candidate that just occupies your headspace 24-7 that, like, we just have to talk about politics all the time. But, like, how has it gotten so early? Why has it gotten so early? It's gotten so early this time. I think you hit the nail right on the head. It is Trump, I, I think. You know, he 
We're seeing Trump on cable news 24-7. We're seeing the commissioning of pundits on twenty, you know, news 24-7. And people just want to take him on so badly. You know, I think we're going to see probably the biggest field by far that we've ever seen, at least on the Democratic side. On the Republican side, I think it was there were 17 contenders in 2016. Yeah. And I mean, it's they had be, the JV debates. Remember? Yeah. The Those under the, the kitty car, the kitty table debates. All Those these were things. fun. I think they're going to have t- JV recreational team and now varsity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Club ball. <laughs> I think yeah, yeah. they're going to do it again. I think they're going to they do it again. You know, I mean, we've got so many people, governors, mayors, uh, senators, Congress people, everybody, billionaires, you name it. You know, you can might as well toss your name into the hat now because um, why not? Well, like right after the election, the uh, uh, one of the congressmen from Maryland, John Delaney, <laughs> was like, uh, yeah, I'm running. Yeah. I'm running. Yeah. And I talked to John Delaney right after he um, I was why in, not? I was in New Hampshire and I was visiting my family and I thought like, you know what? This guy just announced he's running for president. I happen to be in New Hampshire, which is, you know, the first in the nation state. Um, and I just caught up with him at an ice cream stand and we chatted about his race. And he's like, hey, you know what? I'm transparent. None of these other people are. They're all doing the same thing I am. It's just you have to dig around for it. And like, why not? You know? Honestly, I, I, I like I kind of agree with you. Why yeah. the hell not? Yeah. He has nothing to lose. He's a billionaire. Or, um, maybe not a billionaire. He's a multimillionaire. Yeah. He's got a ton he's of got money. He's got the money. He's got, you know, I mean, John Delaney's an interesting guy. I don't think he's quite, um, you know, taken as seriously as some of the other top tier people that we um you know put in those boxes but yeah yeah he's a he's a private businessman he's been successful with a publicly traded company and you know if he wants to run why not it's just it you know especially these days no matter what side of the political aisle you're on like anything can happen anything can happen anything can happen like i i said and i'll i'll say this you know I'll take this with me, you know, forever. Like, yeah. I, as soon as Donald Trump got in the race, he's going to win the nomination. He's really? going to win the nomination. I didn't think he was going to win the the presidency. Of course, looking back on it, duh, of course he was. Like, right. it was just the natural. Uh, but even the nomination, conclusion. that's pretty. That's I knew he was call at the time. Well, I, you know, I'm very wise. <laughs> yeah, that's right. People know that about me. Uh, but like, I knew he was going to win the nomination mm. just because he was willing to go out there and say the things that nobody else would right. say right. that a lot of Republicans secretly believed. And sure. there were a lot of different reasons why he won. Obviously, like sure. we just don't have time to litigate those in the but show. But people love that about him, you know. Absolutely. They love that. Absolutely. And and they would excuse some of the other not so desirable behaviors yes. Yes. because of that. Yes. Um, but, like, you know, when you hear Michael Avenatti, mm-hmm. Stormy Daniels' attorney, who's talking about running for president. Another New Hampshire frequent uh, yeah. flyer there. <laughs> By the way, very open about it. Yeah. He's just saying, Why like, yeah, I'm not? thinking about it. Right. I'm thinking about it, and I could take it to Trump. And, I, and by the way, I think he's got a good message. Yeah, I mean, he's got the kind of, like, fight fire with fire message that Trump wants. I mean, Trump wants somebody to really go in the mud with him, you know, at at the ground level. Biden, people talk about, you know, Biden has said on multiple occasions, like, we can get in a fist fight, you know, like, joking around kind of stuff. I don't know. I mean, Michael Avenatti is, like, a scrappy scrappy dude yeah so i think he's he's kind of angling for a fight right now i did a whole uh podcast which you should subscribe to our podcast you can get all the extra content that we put up there but we did a whole podcast about how in hindsight how ridiculous the the michelle obama when they go low we go high line is Mm -hmm. like it sounded great at the time yeah and i was totally on board with it 
But like in hindsight, it's like no, you you can't. Right. Do that. You just right. can't do well, that. Well, times change, you know. Yeah, you have to meet them and yeah. you have to fight them, whether <laughs> it's down in the ditch or on the high road, wherever yeah. it is, you got to fight them. Uh, and so he has that. So so let's talk about some of the contenders. Yes. Um, I, I want to first of all start about start with Donald Trump and whether or not he's going to get any contenders uh, on the Republican side. Yeah, I think that's a fair question. Um, he. I think there's going to be a couple, you know, Gotta I think be, John right? Kasich is going to challenge him. I think maybe Flake will, maybe Ben Sass, um, you know, Nebraska senator, some people are talking about. You know, these are people who are sort of like, I don't, I don't want to say broken ties with the Republican Party, but almost, essentially. I think Ben Sass the other day said every day he wakes up thinking I might l- leave the party, you know. These guys drive me insane. They <laughs> so, drive I mean, me insane. But they're like the types of people who could be ripe for a Trump uh, primary you know why not sure. because they're they're sort of like mainstream republicans they're what people are sort of used to seeing ben sass is younger he's kind of a rising star flake sure. is on his way out of the senate um he's written a book you know they ben sass and flake have both written books it, you know i mean i, I also I, think it's really important to remember when you hear a lot of these people that are never trump mm-hmm. uh they are voting with him almost right almost 100 percent of right. the time and so you know, if you are one of these lifelong Republican voters and you don't like Trump because he says the quiet part loud mm-hmm. or because he's kind of nasty with some of the some of his language or, or coarse or whatever. At the end of the day, Ben Sass and <laughs> Jeff Flake yeah. and, you know, any of these guys that were looked at as some sort of obstacle to Donald Trump, mm-hmm. they voted with him for everything. Right. Literally everything. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they're definitely not in sort of the McCain wing, as it as it were at the time, you know, sure. who were willing to buck the party for, for their ideals. Um, like, when I hear Ben Sass talk about how he's, like, thought about leaving the party several times, he's like, leave the party. Yeah. Leave the party. And if yeah. Trump is so bad and all these things are so bad, then just leave the party. You can do that. Yeah, and I mean, like, these people haven't been tested nationally, so we don't know. I mean, they haven't. Kasich ran last time, so we know kind of how he fared. I think he only won Ohio in the primaries. He only won his home state. Um, and he did really, you know, poorly in other states like New yeah. Hampshire, and he was there all the time. Um, but this is a different election. You know, I wouldn't write them off because there might be an appetite for that kind of mainstream Republican. I, I think there's probably something to that. But mm-hmm. I also think that Jeff Flake and Ben Sass grossly overestimate their popularity. Yeah, outside I, I agree of with that. Cable news. I agree with that. Yeah, I think you know? it's a lot of I agree with that. A lot of it comes from being commissioned for the Sunday shows and stuff yeah. like that. And they're willing, you know, they t- they talk about their expertise, like foreign policy or whatever. Um, but nationally, I don't know if people know who they are. I, I really I don't, don't think, think so. so. Yeah, I really don't think. And, and sh- sure, they can make their case. That's yeah. That's what makes this. That's what makes America great. That's again. why all the Dems <laughs> are going to run. You know, I mean, it's hey, why not? Yeah, everyone can do it. So, uh, to me, the first real campaign event of 2020 <laughs> was uh, the Brett Kavanaugh hearing. Not John Delaney's ice cream stand Not appearance. John <laughs> okay, I stand corrected. Okay, Because <laughs> that was my personal favorite moment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that, I mean, that's a hell of a kickoff. Uh, but, but for me, for what all of us could see was like the first real test for the 2020 candidates was the Brett Kavanaugh hearing because you had mm-hmm. uh, Amy Klobuchar, who was mm-hmm. talked about running for president. You had yeah. Cory Booker, yep. uh, who was also talked about running for president. You have Kamala Harris, who a lot of people bring up as, yep. as running for president. And they all had their real first real shot um, on the national stage 
to show America what they stand for. <laughs> right. How did that go? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how closely you watched it, but I was I was on the bus when it was happening. I was watching it on my phone, and I was like, oh, my God, I cannot believe this. Kamala Harris started out like she busted right in when Chuck Chuck Rassley, the, that was great. the Judiciary Committee. Yeah, she was like, listen, we received these documents last night. I haven't had time to read them. No one else has. Like, we need to postpone the hearing. That was, to me, even more so than what followed the subsequent days. Yeah. That, to me, set the tone because I wasn't expecting, you know, I follow this stuff for every day. I wasn't expecting a bold move. To me, that said 2020. And that might just be my kind of, like, mindset, you know, thinking about these things. But that was, like... This is a leadership move. This is totally. somebody who's willing to say, you know what? No, we haven't had enough time. And I mean, you know, she's a she's a female senator, first term senator. Chuck Grassley is somebody who's, you know, a long term mainstay in the Senate on the Republican side. And she's willing to take him on, you know, in, in her first term here. So I, I thought it was it showed it showed chops. And then in the you know subsequent days, it was a lot of like, um the questioning, talking about her prosecutorial background and stuff like that. Yeah. But to me, that was like the big tone setting moment. You know, to to me, the thing that has really hampered and, and crippled Democrats over the years mm. is this bizarre fetishism of the norms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, no, there are rules. Yeah. We can't do this. No, yeah. it's like Republicans don't care. Yeah. Like there are technically right. there are rules that you should follow for getting a Supreme Court justice confirmed. And they're not following those at all. They don't care. Right. So neither party is following the rules. And like, who cares at the end of the day? I mean, yeah. it's I think if you look and this isn't that's, the, that's what it is. Who cares? Yeah. I mean, this isn't the end all be all. But if you look at Twitter, I mean, I hate to preface anything with if you look at Twitter, but I mean, people are people are like responding in real time to this and they and folks seem to like what she's doing, you know, so so regular people on Twitter, they're responding and they're saying good for her. You know, she's standing up for the party for once or Uh, not not for her for once, but for somebody. Totally. You know, like, look, I I think they realize like, hey, look, we've got our backs up against the wall. here. This is going to be a really hard fight. At least we can point out how completely insane this is, and right. we're not going to do it by recognizing the gentleman from blah blah blah. They're going right. to they're right. going to cause a scene. Right. They're going to cause and a scene, and that's the, I, I'm here for it. I'm a hundred percent here for it. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot. Of, yeah, I think everyone's here for it. And like the one person I would say isn't necessarily willing to um, cause a scene is uh, Amy Klobuchar, who you mentioned yeah. earlier. She's that's the Minnesota nice. That's the Minnesota nice. <laughs> and like, she's super, I've actually written about her. She's kind of, um, I think she's kind of an underrated 2020 year. She is a good dark horse, like in, at least in my opinion, she's kind of somebody who, um, if there's an opening for like a Midwestern female Senator who sort of plays to that more moderate base she would, to me, be it. I mean, she's she's very well liked in the state, and she's just like she's a very good senator by objective counts. I mean, she's she I think she has like the most um, bipartisan legislation passed out of anybody else. So mm. she's kind of willing to work in like, you know, a traditional sense, and that might not be what people want. But there is, if there's an opening, I think she would fi- she would fit there. So let me ask you this on, on that: when you talk about the bipartisan legislation, yeah. and working across the aisle, I mean, it sounds really snooze snooze fest right well, now but well that's kind of what i'm getting at like mm-hmm. are democrats is there an appetite for a politician like that these days because you do hear i mean it my judgment is and i don't know that democrats have learned this lesson mm-hmm. yet but like what republicans did is they identified their enemy 
the Democrats. Mm -hmm. And they did everything that they could to just completely obliterate them. Yeah. And I think a lot of Republicans are still trying to be Minnesota nice. Yeah. And like reach across the aisle. I I, I genuinely don't know if that's going to hold for like a national election. Yeah. Yeah. But I kind of feel like that's where the Democratic Party is going. Yeah. I mean, things are much dirtier now. Like politics is much dirtier. At least it seems that way every day looking at these things. There's a lot more like low blows and um, on both sides and among all different, you know, levels of government and stuff. So, I I mean, I would argue it's probably not going to be most appealing to be that middle of the road type of person. I think some people will want that and respect that about her um, or about anybody who emerges like that. But I think you're right. I mean, I think there's more of an appetite for like showmanship. I hate to use that word, but sort of like, you know, putting putting everything you have out there and saying like, this is what we stand for. We're a liberal. We're moving left. You know, Trump is in their minds like completely crazy we're going to call him out as completely crazy like that's to me what's going to resonate more with people so you talk about moving left uh (laughs) bernie sanders certainly made a big splash when he ran for president in 2016 i think a lot of democrats it was a wake-up call Mm -hmm. uh that that sort of highlighted just how far they as a party we as a party as a democrat have gotten away from what the democratic party actually should be and should stand for Mm -hmm. and so is Bernie going to run again? I think if Bernie doesn't run again, I don't know. I'm going to have to like find a new profession because <laughs> he is given every indication, yeah. every indication. I mean, anything can happen. He might not run. He might say, you know what? Jason Kander did this. Jason yeah. Kander, you know, former uh, Missouri secretary of state, young up and coming rising star. He gave every indication in, in the world that he was going to run wrote a book, traveled to Iowa, set up field offices in Iowa, set up field offices in New Hampshire, every single thing humanly possible that people associate with that. And then was like, nope, I'm going to run for Kansas City mayor. So, no, I mean, do I think Bernie's going to run for Burlington mayor? No. (laughs) Um, But, you know, like, he might decide at the end he's not going to, but I highly doubt it because he sees the party and, you know, people see it around him and his supporters and stuff, and not even just his supporters, but um, they see the party moving in in the direction that he sort of introduced last year. But that I think, I mean, I I think that uh, whatever he captured in 2016, I think he's going to have a hard time capturing this time around yeah because he certainly opened the door mm -hmm. i think for a lot of politicians to embrace their true progressive nature uh but i think a lot of them frankly younger ones Mm -hmm. uh have picked up on that and will be able to carry that into an election and so i don't think he's going to be that lone voice out there he's i don't think he's going to be the lone voice i think um elizabeth warren will give him a real run for his money i think he'll be able to capture um, a lot of those diehard fans who he kind of in, in the same way that Trump um, probably will in, in terms of that that core base, um, you know, he has a lot of support in the places that he, he won. I, we still see him leading the polls and there's been a handful of um, preliminary 2020 polls, which you can really take with a grain of salt, obviously, at this point. Um, but his name recognition, his sort of uh, leftward leaning like movement and the way that he sort of started it off. Um, has propelled him to the number one spot in the polls. So that's why I'm hesitant to write him off completely. But um, I would say that Warren has more momentum right now. Um, She comes from that same wing of the party ideologically uh, with her sort of every, almost every um, policy proposal under the sun. They're they're very much closely aligned. Um, But she's she's more willing to work with like the Democratic Party than he is, the DNC, the party establishment people. And I think that's a good strategy for her. 
Uh, I have to interrupt uh, just a second because Donald Trump is tweeting. Um, oh, okay. It, we don't do this all the time, but okay. we talked about Hurricane Florence. <laughs> okay. Uh, and he gave himself an A-plus response to the hurricane uh, in Puerto Rico. He mm. tweeted, 3,000 people did not die in the two hurricanes that hit Puerto Rico. Okay. When I left the island after the storm had hit it, they had anywhere from 6 to 18 deaths. As time went by, it did not go up by much. Then, a long time later, they started to report really large numbers, like 3,000. This was done, this is amazing, this was done by the Democrats in order to make me look as bad as possible when I was successfully raising billions of dollars to help rebuild Puerto Rico. There is so much wrong, uh, hang on, let me finish. If a person died for any reason, like old age, just add them onto the list. Bad politics. I love Puerto Rico. Two tweets. From a very normal president of the United States. There is uh -huh. so much wrong and people should be losing their minds. I could just go through. I'm not going to. I'm not going to because I'll, like, I'll have to get duct tape to put around my head to keep it from exploding. <laughs> he raised billions of dollars to help rebuild Puerto Rico. Prove it. Prove it. He didn't raise billions of dollars to help Puerto Rico. That's just not, that's just not true. Also... The Democrats did not put this list together of 3,000 people that died. And nobody was putting people on there that died of old age. God, it's, it's so insecure. It's just crazy. It's insane because I think that a large portion of his base, maybe not the entire thing, of course, but they'll read this and they'll just say, yeah, it's yeah. so true. It's true. It's true. Anyway, I just had to give you that update really quickly. Uh, let's get back to 2020 with <laughs> Hannah Trudeau from National Journal. Um so then you have, uh, I mean, can we can we officially kill the rumors that Hillary Clinton is going to run for president again? I think so. That was out there for a little while. I think that was out there with by some like random blogs yeah. and kind of like weird stuff. Yeah, I'm ready to put that to bed. I think that's a good. We can call. move on. Yeah. We can move. Like, we can move on past the Clintons. I'm ready to entirely. move on from 2016. Yeah, aren't we all? <laughs> aren't we all? Uh, but when you look at like. Some of the centrist Democrats that are sort of from the same mm -hmm. uh, camp as as a Hillary Clinton type candidate. Who's out there and what is their path to getting some sort of Democratic nomination? Well, we mentioned um, Kamala Harris earlier and, and people do consider her a progressive. But I would say her... Um, like previous track record aligns more as a centrist yeah. and i think we're kind of kind of get glimpses of, of that in the future months um because there you know this has been the phase where everybody has received in general pretty positive press coverage it's like yeah. somebody's going to iowa somebody hires a staffer like that's fine that's the preliminary prep work and we get that um but nobody has just just going back to the supreme court stuff you know people praised her prosecutorial um, conduct in the hearing, which was which was what was needed for the job. Yeah. But nobody really followed up. Well, there's all these potential problems that could have come from those, you know. So it's I think there's just digging to be done on a lot of like people who are who are sort of like deemed progressive, like new progressives. Kimberly Harris has a, has a lot of problems, like w w like prison reform and things like yeah, that. Things like, like it's that. not good. Things like that. And I think, you know, I mean, that's that not to single her out because not nobody's sure, record. No, I, yeah, you know, again, I mean, yeah, so yeah. it's one of those things Thank where it's you. like, you know, she's somebody that comes to mind just because I think she has more of that centrist um, background. So does uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, the senator from New York. She's another one that I would put in that camp just because 
Um, she was a blue dog Democrat in the House. That's kind of the centrist sort of wing. I remember when she was first nominated, yeah. th- she had a real problem on guns. guns she was very guns, gun Guns, immigration, yeah. all sorts of stuff. And she's, you know, she's immigration and guns were her two big um, sort of right wing or more Republican um, stances. And, you know, she was the first one to call for abolishing ICE. So, you know, these kinds of like sharp turns to appear more left leaning. um, I think it will work for some people. Some people are willing to say, you know what? Politicians evolve. It's, It's cool. And that's fine. Yeah, totally. And some I, people I, it won't, you know. Right. <laughs> and so, um, but I think it. I'd be remiss not to mention the the biggest sort of name centrist in the mix, which would be Biden. If he runs, um, he'll be I think seventy seven. He runs or seventy eight, um, something like that. Later, later seventies. So yeah, he's look. the typical to me, the typical centrist, yeah. you know, like centrist with a capital C. Yeah. Um, older white male, just like Bernie, different wings of the party. Um, but you know, he's, he's up in the polls too, for whatever that matters. You know, he doesn't need to build up his name recognition. I I think he'll, he will be able, uh, he will definitely be one of the front runners Mm -hmm. if, if, and when he gets into the race. And I think a lot of it will have to do with the fact that he's got a lot of the Barack Obama goodwill. Yeah, he does. You know, he does. And you know, but that'll, that'll take you pretty far. Yeah, I, I will. We just saw Obama come back. Um, but, you know, Biden's toyed with stuff like this before. He kind of kept people on a string last time and said, you know what, I think I'll send this one out when Hillary um, was running. So, you know, there's no Hillary-like figure, and I think that's why people are making the case for him. They're kind of saying it's now or never. There's no, um, you know, f- clear front runner as, as it was with Hillary. Yeah. Um, so he so he might, but then I, I don't know. I'm, I'm hesitant also, to say he's going to run. I, yeah. I think he might change his mind at the very end. I think that's I think that's that that could be right. I also think that a lot of the um uh luster of the Obama presidency is mm-hmm. starting to wear off a little bit. I agree. Because, I agree. I mean when you look at what's happened to state houses and yeah. local elections, a lot of that lands at the feet of Barack Obama. Uh Hannah Trudeau with National Journal. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for it's having me. Your first me. trip here. Yeah. Hopefully, it won't be your last. Uh, folks, make sure you go get the podcast. Check it out uh, wherever you get your podcasts. We're going to put it up right after the show. And remember to check out our website, BillPressShow.com, where you can uh, get a copy of Bill's new book and also leave your reasons why Trump must go. Bill will be back tomorrow. We'll see you then. This is the Bill Press Show. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com.